Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Dave McClure, welcome to the James Altucher Show. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So, Dave, uh, I'm going to give a little intro for you just in case... Uh, people may or may not know who you are, but you're one of the most well-known venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, but you've had, you know, lots of ups and downs. Your, your venture capital firm, 500 startups is invested in over 500 companies. So you have a very particular, uh, approach to venture capital and investing, which we'll get to, but I want to, um, I want to talk about some other stuff first. You got actually it's over nine hundred companies at the moment, but maybe only five hundred that are still alive. You're invested in <laughs> you're invested in nine hundred companies. Well, not necessarily personally, but the firm, yes. Um, you know, I hate to say this, Dave, but uh, it does sound a little fuzzy. I can't quite understand everything. Okay. Um, that sounded a little better just then. I'm just holding the uh, mic up to my mouth on the. Uh, that's perfect. Is that okay if you okay. do that? Sure. Okay. This is, so, this is fine for me. So your firm's invested in 900 startups, and I want to get into your background for a while. But first, let me ask, when you're invested in 900 startups, what do you feel is the actual – there's so much diversity. What do you feel is the actual, you know, alpha there? Like, it, like – Aren't you just going to follow basically stock market returns in that case? No, I don't think so. I think we're still quite selective. Uh, for some folks, they may feel like 900 companies in the last five years isn't being selective. But given that there's probably hundreds of thousands of companies being started every year, and uh, you know, we're probably one of the most active investors in the world. Uh, we did about 300 investments last year. We first checked new investments last year. But we still have a pretty selective process. We still screen, you know, probably close to a thousand companies every quarter for our uh, applications, and we only accept thirty. So, um, wow. you know, at least in that regard, we have a pretty high filter. Uh, but the reason that we do a large number of investments is that, you know, the biggest companies are usually outliers and don't show up for anything more often than one to two percent of the time. Uh, and it also provides more kind of predictability for what goes on. Uh, we're very early investors, usually accelerated seed stage, and the attrition rates are high. 
Um, so in the long run, we probably expect that only 20 to 30 percent of our companies ever make it to some kind of exit, and probably only that five to 10 percent make it to a very large exit. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to that because I think um, that high attrition rate is is very interesting on a personal level. But uh, let me ask you about your personal side. So so when how old were you when you started uh, 500 startups? Uh, well, I guess when we officially got it started five, four or five years ago, uh, I was probably just shy of 44. Uh, I think I probably turned 44 within a week after we did the first closing for the fund, the first set of investments. So you were 44 and a lot of people send me emails and I don't know if you, maybe you get the same emails. A lot of people send me emails. Oh, I'm 27 and I don't know what to do with my life. I feel like a failure. I feel like killing myself. And it's just, you know, a lot of people feel that way in their 20s, in their 30s, when they hit 40. Like, I remember my 40th birthday was like the worst day of my life. I felt like a total failure. And, you know, you wrote this blog in 2012. You were, I think you were about 46 years old. And there's one paragraph I'll read back to you. Um so after so you wrote this, so after 20 years in the Valley, I had only made a little bit of money, had some modest accomplishments as a programmer, an entrepreneur, and a marketer. Meanwhile, my peers at PayPal had gone on to create incredible businesses like LinkedIn, YouTube, Yelp, and Yammer, and other kids half my age were seemingly even more ambitious. Most folks thought I was a decent fellow, but over the hill with my best days behind me. <laughs> And, and and it was almost from that moment on that that's how I started hearing from you as just an incredible, successful venture capitalist. Like that was like a turning point. When you, <laughs> like you kind of called your own bottom in a weird way. Yeah, well, I would say my, my rough years were probably, well, at various different times, but certainly – I think 2005 and 2010 was a lot of, of, you know, mental challenges and demons. I think I used that term also in the blog post that I was sort of facing. Like, like what mental uh, challenges? Like, what, what, what was going on? What happened in 2005? Well, I think just, you know, when you come to Silicon Valley, you're competing against, you know, probably the best folks on the planet in a lot of ways. Uh, certainly working at places like PayPal and, and others where, where, you know, I had a lot of friends and a lot of people that I knew personally even before they had been hugely successful. And, you know, you just hold yourself up to that mirror and you're like, wow, I'm not Michael Jordan. <laughs> and well, I think well, uh, a lot of us are in the Valley thinking that we're Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, I came to the Valley about 25 years ago and I had done very well in, you know, listening to some of my peers at the time. But I think there's just always, you know, higher standards and higher levels of accomplishment that you run into when you, you know, growing up against some of the top entrepreneurs and other investors in the Valley. Okay, but So you, it's, it's a difficult sort of story to hold yourself up to the standards and still try to be achieving. And, and I was, you know, eventually when I went that post, I, I had been here for, you know, for 20 years without necessarily a huge amount of, the, of successes. And, and okay, I want to ask you a couple questions about that. First off, Everybody can compare themselves to the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Larry Pages and say, oh, I didn't make it. But you also can compare – you were comparing yourself to basically the entire PayPal mafia that started YouTube, LinkedIn, and all those guys. And then you worked at Intel, Microsoft, Facebook, PayPal, Mint, Odesk. You you worked everywhere. You also built and sold a company, um, but you said it wasn't like all – you know, a huge deal. Um 
So how did you deal with, forget the Larry Pages of the world because they're like beyond, but how did you deal with the, the, the <laughs> how did you deal with the basic envy that, oh, this kid just worked next to me at PayPal in a cubicle and now Google just gave him $500 million? Yeah, well, to be more accurate, I think uh, Chad and Steve and Joe would uh, sell the company for a billion and a half. I don't know exactly how much they could Um I, I think it's different, though, when you're, you know, there's a lot of people who probably know of Mark Zuckerberg or know of Steve Jobs and Ben Gates and other people. And that's a little bit more distant comparison. I think it's quite different when you actually know those people and work with them uh, before they became, you know, super famous. Like Chad. You know, Chad and Stephen John would read people that I work with at PayPal and hang out with at lunch and, you know, play football around with. Yeah, like, you <laughs> and, like, like you literally know, you, you ate lunch with them and you could have said, hey, let's start off this, like, video sharing company. You could have been in that well, conversation. No, in fact, I mean, I've got uh, some of the early, you know, iterations of YouTube in, gosh, I think it was April 2005, which I would actually sent me some of that stuff. I was working at a different company, but, you know, it wasn't like... <laughs> Theoretical. I was probably one of the first thousand people that used uh, LinkedIn and used YouTube and you know, used Twitter. Um, so you kind of did have that opportunity. You were on the ground floor, and that's why I think it's you know it's a lot more real when you realize, hey, these people are really amazing, and I'm not so amazing. Well, okay, but 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 you are amazing, right? You've done a lot of amazing things. So so what I'm curious, what what's amazing to me is how you move past that point when. When you're feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm at the center of the universe, but somehow the explosion, the Big Bang is not happening for me. And it happened yeah. for the guys right next to me. Like like everybody around me, it's happening to, but not me. So how did you get past – I personally would feel envious at that point. Like how did you get past that? Yeah, I mean I don't, I don't know exactly the, the journey that I – sort of took was a weird one. Um, you know, for, for me, it was very helpful later in life to have gone through those things, but I don't know if I was rationalizing it. I, I had some time. Nobody ever rationalizes it that way. <laughs> Nobody ever I, says, oh, six years from there. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I spent time doing a couple different types of work. You know, one as a programmer developer, one period as a master, one period kind of marketing and did that, and then, you know, probably at the end of the time as an angel investor. And I think, you know, I kind of kept looking for where's, you know, where's an area that I think I actually am doing well at. Um, probably, you know, between 2005 to 2010, I still, at least up until 2008, but mostly doing angel investing as a recreation. Um, I started trying to get 500 up and down in 2008, like in the middle of that financial crisis. So that was not the best, best time to be raising. Another big stroke fund. of luck for you? Uh, yeah, well, the stroke of luck was really that, you know, Sean Parker had been asking me to come over to Founders Fund, and that was my plan B. Um, and so I, I had a really unique opportunity when the rest of the financial world was, you know, crashing down around everyone's ears. Uh, I could jump into venture capital in Q4 2008. And, um, you know, I guess I felt at the time this was kind of one of my, I don't want to say my last shot, but it was an opportunity to, you know, try and make investing a career as opposed to, you know, a recreational pastime. Um, because you had, and, made, you had made, you know, and, and Dave, sorry to interrupt, but you had made a little bit of money, so you had opportunity to invest a little bit here and there in some companies as an angel investor? Yeah. 
Yeah, between 2004 and 2008, I guess, as I was leaving PayPal and after, I probably did about 13 personal investments, about 300000 in total. Uh, um, you know, at least some of the money that I had made at PayPal, I didn't make a huge amount like other folks, but I, I probably got, you know, half a million, some million that I used for, you know, putting money out of the house, and I had some left over that I didn't really know exactly where to put, but I kind of thought I, I was modestly good at picking startups and had... You know, that was at least a fun area for me to put that on the floor. Um, so I was 13 companies in four years between 2004 and 2008. Um, three of those eventually ended up working. Uh, Slideshare, Mint.com, and Mastery all eventually got acquired by various companies for a little over $100 million each. And um, so three companies out of 13 ended up performing quite well. And that was where I sort of felt there was some, you know, confidence in trying to make investing more of my uh, place to make my mark. And then, um, uh, you know, again, though, so you're, you're doing some angel investing, but again, you're, you were comparing yourself and you admit this in the post, you're, you're somewhat comparing yourself again to these guys who it seems like magic what's happening to them. Like that's the only way I can describe it. And you must have felt yeah. like the magic was not hitting you in some way. Like, and I'm just, I'm just wondering again, like, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like my junior high school summer camp roommate is an, is a seed investor in Uber. And, you know, <laughs> right. it makes me, I can't help it. Like, I think I'm a good guy and I, I work hard on myself, but I can't help but think, wow, I could have been in that room too. And, uh, uh, you know, it's yeah. difficult. I think, again, a more personal story and direct story is Travis asked me. So I met Travis before he started Uber. Uh, or oh, oh in Uber really. Dave, sorry. Can you speak and more so into the – can you speak a little bit more into the mic? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was going to say, again, this is, you know, not a theoretical story. I, I met Travis before he became an investor and eventually CEO at Uber. I got an email from Travis in June of 2010 about investing in seed ground. Yeah, we talked about it. And I ultimately decided not to do it, <laughs> which was you know, probably the single biggest fuck up in my investing career. Like, like, okay, um, if you had, like, what was your average investment size at that time? Well, I was just getting the investment, you know, sort of uh, the firm started at that time. If I'd made it as a personal investment, probably would have been, you know, between ten to twenty thousand. If I'd done the investment out of the fund, it probably would have been fifty to a hundred thousand. Okay, so but 100... even if it'd only been ten thousand personally, that probably would have been worth ten million. If I'd done, you know, a hundred thousand out of the fund, it probably would have been worth a hundred million. So, so, <laughs> so that's a pretty big miss, and it's like Warren. But it's to be fair, it puts you in the same category as Warren Buffett. Like his biggest. Failures, he he admits, were not the things he invested in that then lost money, but the things he didn't invest in. Oh, all the time. Yeah, I don't really look back and worry too much about you know making investments that didn't pan out. That happens all the time. It's really missing the big opportunities, especially the ones right up to your house. Yeah, and so okay, so before two thousand and five, you did kind of um, you you know you had a, a consulting company or a software company in the mid nineties. Uh, you sold it. What was happening there? Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that was really a startup experience. It was kind of more of a small business experience. But, um, you know, a consulting business that I've been doing independently, you know, gradually turned into a larger, uh, <laughs> larger team of people. Um, I think in our height, we were probably about 20 people, maybe two or three million in revenue. Um, but I was still... 
that was kind of my real first real business that I was doing. I kind of made this gradual transition from engineer to you know, project manager to eventual business owner. Um, and I learned a lot, but I probably made a lot of mistakes. And, um, you know, the acquisition was really more because we were having challenges and, you know, we really needed to find the acquirer. Uh, I, I, it was a very small, you know, almost talent-based acquisition. And eventually ended up being not, you know, terrible. It was a half a million dollar kind of thing. But it certainly wasn't anything to compare to, you know, running a larger business. And I probably would not consider it to be successful except to the extent that I didn't go bankrupt. <laughs> Yeah, that's always good. Not um, Particularly in the mid '90s, when everyone else was getting rich. Yeah, and again, I had friends who you know started companies that ended up getting you know acquired for fifty to one hundred million dollars, and then you know the companies that acquired them went public and went on further. So, well, I'll there, I'll there were several acquaintances who were you know huge winners in the late '90s, and you know throughout that period of time. So again, you know, brushes with greatness, but no personal. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to guess was your mistake with the consulting company is that you were, you were probably were profitable or close to it. Probably what? You, you, my guess is you were probably profitable in your mid nineties company or, or close to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I think we were modestly unprofitable, but you know, to the tune of maybe making 1.8 or 1.9 million in revenue on a $2 million expense. So I sort of just figured out some financing capital and, it, it was not a bad small business, but it wasn't really uh, insane to the startup scene. Although we, we did work for a lot of startups and, you know, a little bit of work for Netscape and uh, a couple of other companies in the early years. So I got, I got to see some, some of that stuff happening. So you should have, you should have like somehow changed your service into a product, IPO'd and yeah, lost $50 million? Or I should have just. Or I should have just joined Microsoft or joined Intel or joined Yahoo or joined Netscape. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, um, but that's all right. I mean, I, again, I sort of felt like I got some very interesting experiences. Um, and, you know, those, those have served me very well. I think uh, having been on the engineering end and the marketing side and the investment side have, have all been very helpful experiences now as, uh, as VC firms uh, to figure out, you know, what's in people's hands, what do they need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you must have had a, uh, uh, having any experience. I think a lot of investors and venture capitalists, this is what I see. They, because they have no experience running or starting companies, they actually are not very good venture capitalists. I mean, they spread the money around, but they don't really know what they're doing, I find, operationally. Yeah, I think you're certainly seeing that with a lot of the, you know, today's angel investors and seed fund managers tend to come more from the operational side. I think if you're, Doing later stage investment at Series A or certainly at Series B and beyond, then I think it becomes more of a financial, uh, you know, focused set of activities. Um, but a lot of what we end up working with companies on is really around product development and marketing, and those are areas that you know probably are best served having had some operational experience on programming or design or you know marketing or sales. And. Um so, so you st- you also seem to have some interest in expanding globally. Like you have a lot of, uh, it's almost like your franchise, yeah. your, your VC firm. Like, and you you have offices in all these different countries. You have a, a significant percentage invested around the world. Yep. Yeah, I think that you know from the beginning we had an interest in you know having a little bit more global uh, field of view. Um, certainly, the people on the team. Also, you know, come from different countries and, 
you know, some of that I think is because we feel like the investment opportunity around the world is going to be a really big one, especially over the next 10 to 20 years. But some of it was also just personal interest and getting a chance to learn about different geographies. And um, we've kind of woven that into strategy, but I would say some of it's personal interest, some of it's, you know, economic strategy. Well, um, it, it seems like in Silicon Valley, it's probably, my guess is it's hard to get cheap valuations where if you go to like uh, Mumbai and in India, you're probably going to get dirt cheap valuations on, <laughs> on decent companies in a billion person market. Yeah, I, mean, I think valuation is part of the story, but the, it's not just getting it at low valuations. I think it's really also seeing big opportunities globally that most other people in the Valley are really not paying attention to. Um, and, and not to say that the strategies here don't make sense. I think there's just you know, huge businesses that are being created in the Valley every day. And for a lot of folks who are investors in the Valley, there's really no good reason to, you know, move more than 30 miles, a 30 mile radius between, you know, San Francisco and San Jose. Um, but there's, you know, obviously some very, very large markets that are fast growing opportunities around the world. And whether or not, you know, they're going to birth the next Facebook or Twitter, they might, you know, create very, very large companies that do have, you know, large uh, uh, economic, you know, outcomes. And those could be in India, those could be Latin America, those could be Southeast Asia or the Middle East. Um, you know, so we, we felt like there's, you know, really good reasons to be investing in those markets, not just for low valuation, uh, you know, but there's really just more uh, broader universal opportunity that people here weren't taking as much a, a look at. So, so, Back to the 2005 to 2010 period, like, again, you know, yeah. I sort of feel like a lot of people go through that experience of feeling that um, I'm not good enough or I somehow failed to find my purpose and goal. Like what what you know, you sort of kind of said to yourself at some point, well, I'm 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 pretty good at investing. So this is what I'm going to try to do. And you stuck with it. How do you think people can get to know? What, what they're good at. And, and you sort of figured this out at, a, at what many would consider a fairly late age. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was really early 40s. And, uh, you know, I had already spent 20 years in the Valley and probably two or three different careers. Um, and, you know, not to say that I didn't feel like I was a, a pretty good programmer, you know, pretty decent entrepreneur. Maybe I was, you know, pretty good at marketing in various capacities. Um, it just didn't feel like I had found, um, you know, my, my, hit my stride in any of those. Um, but really, I, I sort of really enjoyed the investing side. And again, I kind of had a little bit of a unique opportunity there because I had done both the engineering and marketing side. And there weren't that many people doing investing who had both disciplines. Um, so that, you know, was where I kind of said, well, let's try this again. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, try, you know, figuring out what, what career was going to fit. Um, and it was very gradual, I think, you know, between 2004, 2008, I, I was mostly just doing part-time investing while I was still operational uh, in a few other roles at Mint and, and helping with other companies. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think in 2007, 2008, I was like, okay, let's try and put together a fund. Um, unfortunately, I, the first, you know, time at it was right when the market was crashing. And so that became challenging. Um, but Sean gave me a shot, uh, with founders Sean, Sean and Peter. And, um, you know, I think that was kind of where things really started 
heading my way. You know, you could maybe point to some of the conferences or things I've been doing before that, and maybe the Facebook class I taught at Stanford with DJ Fogg. Um, but it really felt like when I first started investing in Founders Fund as a full-time sort of, you know, focus, uh, that, that's when I think door felt like doors started to open. Well, well, um, can I, you can know, I, certainly I, two years later when we got, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, oh, I wanted to ask about that. Like, well, I, I see you all over, you know, Twitter and, you know, to some extent Quora and, uh, certainly on like TechCrunch, you're, you're, you're a very, at least on the internet, in social media, you're very social. And my guess is even more powerful than your investing skills were probably your social skills. Cause it seemed like you, and, and in Silicon Valley, that seems very <laughs> important. Like you probably built up a very good network. Like you, you sort of act like casually like, Oh, Sean Parker gave me a chance. This is Sean Parker, like the number two guy at Facebook. Like he doesn't give everyone a chance. He gave you a chance. <laughs> Yeah, I think I owe him a big, uh, a big debt of gratitude. Um, and, and well, did I, I, did I, think, I hear you say Sean and Peter, as in Peter Thiel? Yes. Okay, so yeah, again, well, like, his, oh, I called my buddy Bill Gates and Larry Page, and uh, <laughs> we flew on a UFO uh, together to Mars. And well, I mean, I, I worked for Peter twice a little bit, uh, you know, for three years at PayPal, and then you know, two years or a year and a half, I guess, at Founders Fund, but I don't have a high bandwidth relationship with Peter. I, I just have a, you know, I've, I've probably for 10 or so years, maybe now a little bit longer than that, that I've known Peter. I probably have, you know, three or four really substantial long conversations. Uh, you know, one of them was when I interviewed at PayPal. I think one was when he left or uh, left PayPal to do something else. And then, you know, a couple of times when I was working at Founders Fund, he's, you know, He's an amazing person, and I maybe just you know name drops him as if I see him every weekend, but that's not really the case. <laughs> but um, still, but still, though, it's the power of the because you said there's going to be uh, this eighty percent attrition rate anyway. Like most startups are going to fail. It's really the power of the network and the and how you build a personal network that is going to give you opportunities in the long run. These are the seeds that you yeah. planted from two thousand to two thousand ten. Yeah, and even and even before that, I would say I have always, you know, done a lot of community uh, user group work and you know conferences. I've probably been doing you know user groups and conferences in the valley for 25 years, uh, at least since the early 90s. And um, so, so let's you know, say, I, I think. Oh, go ahead. The, the point that you made that I think was right. Probably the other thing that was notable was I, you know, some of the. Some of the talks and presentations I did probably starting around 2005 or six were around, you know, some of the challenges that I experienced at, um, uh, at PayPal, uh, also I'd simply hired and, 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 um, I started doing this talk called Startup Metrics for Pirates, I think around maybe 2006 or seven. Uh, and then I started doing some other talks and presentations that, you know, about some visibility and slide share. Um, so I, I think there was a good bit of social media connectivity and I don't know if I was really doing it intentionally at, at first. Um, okay. Let, let me, let me reel that back. Dave, let me reel that back for a second. You said earlier, you, you taught a class at Stanford about Facebook. So again, it's not like a casual meetup. It's a class at Stanford you were the lecturer <laughs> at. <laughs> Like like half the class yeah. is gonna go on to start like billion dollar companies and you were the teacher. 
again, it was a very unique opportunity and, you know, BJ Fogg was a friend of mine who had been part of adjunct faculty at Stanford. I, I don't know how many people get to teach a class at Stanford as the first teaching opportunity that was very, uh, sort of different. Um, and just because of the timing, we, we kind of caught lightning in a bottle there. Facebook had just launched platform. This was fall of 2007, I think. Um, and, yet, and we had some really bright, bright students and, you know, they, they did the amazing things. I think we just put together our class and an opportunity that, you know, gave them a uh, door to walk through. And, and you're right, there were some amazing companies that came out of that. Certainly one, you know, that's still today doing, doing quite well called Share Through that was started by some of our TAs and students and a few others that were, you know, acquired for, for decent sums. So it was, it was a really op- amazing opportunity. Some really great people came out of that. And that, that was sort of a stepping stone to a lot of other things. Yeah, so 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 you had done all of this, and and you know, in your post, you're still kind of feeling, um, maybe because Silicon Valley, the bar is so high, you're still feeling this level of mediocrity. Like you said, you weren't feeling amazing, and um, but it was all these combinations of things, and I would say the mo- the strongest was 25 years of of building a network uh, that allowed you to basically create this enormously successful and and well known. Uh, VC company that's still that's still growing. Like uh, you know, every right. time I read a new news article, you you raise more money and invest in more companies. Yep. Well, that's our job. So what's what's so given the eighty the, the huge attrition rate, you know, the, and by attrition, you know, basically means it's a nice way of saying companies are failing. It seems so. So I spent some time as a, a venture capitalist, and and one thing that I really hated about it was you don't really get a chance to spend time with your good companies. You spend t- a lot of times answering calls from the companies that are basically about to go out of business because they're terrified and you feel bad. At least I felt bad for them. I want to hold their hand a little bit. Like, how do you deal with all the, yep. the failure that you have to deal with still? Well, I mean, I think we have to be somewhat disciplined in where we spend our time. Uh, you know, we try and be helpful. A lot of what we're trying to build at 500 is not necessarily, uh, you know, the typical VC relationship where people sit on boards and, you know, maybe have five companies that they're interacting with or managing. In our case, we have, you know, hundreds. Um, you know, what we try and build is a large community of founders and mentors and really a set of platforms that they can use to help each other. Um, but yeah, you're right. We, we run into a lot of failure pretty much constantly and, you know, we can't, we, we have to be straightforward. We can't afford to spend time with, you know, the three to 500 companies in our portfolio that are not working. We have to spend time with the, you know, 100 or so, maybe 200 that actually have a shot at, uh, really large outcomes. Um, but we, we try and provide a platform where everyone benefits from that, at least, you know, to some extent. Okay, so let's um, say, let's but I, say- I think understanding the numbers really drives that approach. We, we, you know, I think after spending, you know, five six years as an angel investor and another five six years as a VC, you know, doing a really high volume strategy, we we have a practical approach to what the numbers look like, and um, you know, we we are designing for scale, but we still have to focus on the things that are working. So let's say I'm one of the three, four, five hundred who are going to fail, and I call you up and I say, Dave, I'm really depressed. I, I have to tell you, this is not working out. I'm I'm going bankrupt, and uh, I don't know what to do next. Like, what what would you tell me? 
Well, I don't think most of the folks are going bankrupt. Probably what they are facing is, you know, in, in different stages, but at least the companies that we work with, they probably have raised a half a million to a million, maybe some of them have raised more than that, and they're probably running out of cash and they're getting down to their last three to six months worth of cash. Um, in some cases, we're able to help them find, you know, exits either on the talent acquisition side. Sometimes, you know, they shut down the company and they go join one of our other companies. Uh, sometimes we tell them, Hey, just, you know, give it a rest and go take a vacation and come back and try it again when you're recharged. Um, what, what about, but what about, I don't think, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. I mean, there's a few cases where we're going to write, there's a few cases where we might write a second check to give them a little bit more runway, but we're not a big investor. Our, our typical, you know, check size is around a hundred thousand. Most of the times we're the smaller or smallest investor in a lot of the rounds that we do. And so usually there are other larger investors who are really the primary person that, you know, invested in the round or that has a board seat. Uh, and I think they have, you know, probably a lot more responsibility in how the company does a wind down or, you know, helping them find uh, uh, dry land. Um, we, we try and be helpful in those situations, but we can't, you know, we can't bridge companies that are failing um, and really you know, be effective in what we're trying to do for our investors and make a return. And and we're transparent about that. I think we, you know, we tell all of our companies, whether they go through our accelerator seed program, that we're, you know, we're generally not going to be leading your next round and we might participate. Um, but they have to be successful and viable businesses for us to really, you know, put more money into them. So, so I, I want to ask you what kind of companies you invest in, but, but, but before that, what do you think about the, I, I sort of have this theory that, Nothing is predictable, and so so you look at companies like you look at companies like Twitter, which was originally Odeo. Uh, you look at companies like Google, which originally had no concept of AdSense. You know when they first started. You look at companies like Groupon, sure. which was like a, an email marketing list for charities. You know Instagram right. was originally Bourbon. So all of these successful companies, they kind of started with ideas and smart people, but then they hundred percent changed their ideas in some in some cases. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, PayPal had probably four or five different product uh, focus areas before they found the one that really ended up working. For oh, them, PayPal's, like, you know, and PayPal's an enormous example. PayPal was like pay with your Palm Pilot, like the wor- what would now be considered the worst right. idea in history. <laughs> well, I think that might be coming back into Vogue soon, but uh, I think at the time they were probably 10 to 15 years early on mobile payments. And, uh, you know, that was already the second or third iteration. They had been, you know, the initial ideas that I had maxed were working on were really around security software, uh, and then later security software for monetary transactions, and then later, you know, mobile payments, and then later email payments, and then later email payments for eBay, which was really where yes. things kind of took off. Um, so, you know, again, there was two years, probably three to five business models, two years of shifting, you know, strategies and iteration before they found something that really kind of caught fire. Um, but that's, that's pretty typical in that, you know, great founders, I think, move the business to where, uh, or move the product to where the business is and less capable entrepreneurs don't ever make those pivots or don't make those fast enough. So, so, um, so, so when you evaluate but it's it- not to say that you can't find success. I, I do think that there's, you know, within the areas that PayPal was initially focusing on, eventually financial transactions became a focus. Eventually, small business sellers became a focus. Um, and that's where they found the product opportunity and the market opportunity. Um, so when we're, when we're generally looking for investments, 
you know, it's not like somebody has a great piece of code and then goes find the customer. Usually we're looking at people who've got a functional product, they've got a customer base that they're starting to work with, and they still might shift around or, you know, change some of the focus of the product in the market. But it's more likely the case that someone might be building a product for, you know, parents and families and they maybe start with something that might be education focused, they might end up with something with safety or security focus. It's it's usually still within the same customer segmentation and same you know, product family. But it, it seems um, like it seems so like I, what's what's more important are the people than the business plan because you have to know you're investing in a person who's going to be able to pivot in the right ways. I think that's true, but it's hard to know the person. I mean, particularly for us, you know, eighty percent of our company, probably more, are first time entrepreneurs and don't have a huge track record, uh, and so we don't have, you know, a long history understanding whether they're great entrepreneurs or capable entrepreneurs. Uh, what we probably have some visibility into is what's the product that they built, um, you know, what's the current level of customer focus, and maybe some indications of where, you know, they've had success in the past, either working for a company or, you know, building a product or going even, you know, to some school that hopefully had, you know, good credibility and branding. Uh, but it's still a lot of guesswork and, you know, maybe it's informed guesswork, um, but we're wrong a lot. I mean, I think that's part of our strategy is just assuming that, you know, we're going to make 20 bets a year per person and, you know, probably between five to 10 of those might be successful in surviving for longer than a year or two. And of those five or 10 are going to be the opportunities for us to have, you know, larger outcomes. So, so in terms of the, the math of that, this is this is where I also question the, the the venture capital and even angel investing industries and, and private. This applies to private equity as well. Essentially, the exits happen when the stock market is are, when the stock markets are reaching new highs. So, so it's very rare that you're going to have an exit when, let's say, in a 2008 or an early 2009. Of course, that's when the opportunities are, but that's when the opportunities are in the stock market as well, and they're much more liquid and you know, so what's the? Would you make a comparison between venture capital returns and the S and P five hundred on steroids? Like, let's say a leveraged S and P five hundred. I mean, I certainly think there's correlation between the two markets, but you know, there's there's a lot of variation on that. There's still large outcomes that can happen during down markets. I think mean, you know, PayPal went public in February two thousand one. Um, February 2002, uh, about three months after the 9-11, you know, sort of disaster and a lot of financial markets were still very, very shaky after the dot-com boom. Uh, people were extremely skeptical about PayPal going public at the time, but it went, you know, fabulous as well. Um, Mint.com, the company I was an investor in, got acquired in 2009 um, by Intuit for, you know, I think, $140 million. Uh, you know, which, and you could argue it could have been bigger in a boom period. Maybe that's true. Um, but I think that was a very, you know, tough time in the valley. There wasn't a lot going on in 2009. People were still, you know, very scared about the financial real estate uh, market crash. So I think there's, you know, there's exits in a variety of different markets. Um, sometimes some of the best opportunities to invest happen during down markets. Um, so I don't think it's all completely correlated. There's, there's quite a bit of variety that happens within those worlds. Okay, you, um, you've convinced me there. I'm, I'm a believer. Um, 
So, yeah, so, but I think the thing that you point out, you know, I was just looking at your bio, and it's funny, the numbers that you quote, you founded or co-founded over 20 companies and failed at 17 of them. I, I guess that means you had three out of 20 successes. <laughs> yeah, so I fit your ratio. Um, I'm, I'm like a one-man VC fund of myself. There you go. A sequential portfolio. <laughs> right. And and my exits happened at market high, so it was uh, it was tricky. But um, yeah. when, when you're... But I think that those... Whether or not they happen during market highs, I think you've got that ratio, 15%. That's probably about what we think about in terms of, you know, what the meaningful exits in our portfolio end up, or at least the potential for exit. Um, right. when I, when I was making investments personally, out of the 13 that I invested in, three had successes. So again, sort of in that same, you know, vein of most things don't work, a few things do. So let's say, um, but let's- the problem is if you don't have a portfolio approach to investments, I don't think you have any predictability in getting to those outcomes, whether they're up or down markets. I, I agree with that. Like the one, the one thing I learned for myself was in terms of my streams of, of income and investments and so on was to get heavily more diversified after all these failures. Like that was my biggest financial lesson among personal lessons. But if let's say, let's say you're a person sitting in, I don't know, Ohio and you're you're thinking about doing a, a startup. Uh, what would you recommend people start looking at? Like, what what kind of areas or sectors would would you recommend startups to start, or 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 potential entrepreneurs to start thinking about? What would you tell your children? Well, you know, I don't know that I want to pick you know hot sectors. We we generally don't try and jump on the trend of the day. I think there's new opportunities that are coming that are interesting. And, like what? You know, if you. Well, I think if you want to look at over the next five years, it seems pretty obvious that virtual reality is going to be an interesting sector. I think if you look at home automation products, that's certainly going to be a big, you know, category. Um, hardware software combinations in general, I think are going to be a, a big category. But I do feel like some of the enthusiasm in those sectors is a little, um, overdone. And there's a lot of areas that are very unsexy that we think are great investments. Um, and, you know, most of those businesses are very transactional in nature. They're not the next Twitter or Facebook. Uh, they're like, you know, a food delivery business where the internet marketing component is online. Uh, or they're a SaaS product for businesses that's helping, you know, provide a marketing or productivity tool and sold them on a, you know, monthly subscription basis. Um, so those are the less sexy stories that don't necessarily get as much attention as the big ones. Um, but I think if you look at successful businesses, the majority of them, um, at least on the small and medium side, are, are not necessarily breakthrough innovation. They're, they're much more incremental innovation and improvements, you know, on really basic things like just, you know, what's overall margin, what's kind of the internet marketing and customer acquisition channel. Um, a lot of the businesses being built today that are very successful, particularly, let's just pick a few examples like Uber or Airbnb, um, those are not technologically, uh, you know, sophisticated. I, I don't want to say they're not sophisticated, but they're, they're not, you know, starting, starting a taxi business or starting a hospitality, you know, part-time hotel business. There's nothing technically crazily new about those businesses. Uh, they've been around for tens of years, if not hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, it's really the addition of sort of mobile-based products or services or, 
internet marketing and some you know GPS components that drive the innovation in those businesses. Yeah, did, um, do, do you ever feel like if you're in Silicon Valley and you start a food truck that has a mobile app, you're going to be worth $50 million. But if you're in Cincinnati and you start a food truck with a mobile app, you're going to be worth basically what your sales for the day were. <laughs> I think the difference is whether you scale or not and whether you can get access to the capital that helps you scale. I, I certainly do think you can start those businesses in different places. I might, I might say the food truck business is more interesting in maybe the LA and New York markets, not necessarily in Cleveland. Um, but I don't think you have to be in the Valley. I think, the value is a place where people raise money, not build businesses. Right. That's a good point. Um, so, I mean, there's a concentration of capital here that is unparalleled around the world. Um, that's certainly true. There's a concentration of very large technical platform businesses that are here. Um, and but I think more and more the internet is a level playing field, and more and more businesses like AngelList and Thunder Club and others like Kickstarter and Indiegogo are also leveling the playing field, at least for the you know, for the first couple of rounds of access to capital. Um, I think that's incredibly with, you know, important. Series A and Series B. Yeah. AngelList. So you can has, start a business anywhere. Yeah, and AngelList is kind of, you're right, has very much leveled the playing field. Um, and I encourage listeners to, to check it out. So if I'm in Ohio and I have a business and I have customers, I have some software, I think I have a unique product and I solve uh, uh, some urgent problems, how do I, how do I basically get you to notice me? Well, for I mean, we actually have invested in a couple of businesses out of Cleveland, and um, you know, I'm, it's not, not I'm not in Cleveland, by the way. I'm just I'm just using Cleveland as an example. <laughs> no, and I I grew up in West Virginia, so you know you can replace Cleveland with any you know maybe of the not top ten metros around the country, but you know numbers twenty to hundred. Um, you know, we have an online application process for our accelerator programs that we run every quarter. Um, we also have, you know, an ongoing seed investment program that we, you know, find opportunities again through AngelList, through direct referrals from our existing founders and mentors. Um, I would say it's, you know, it's not as easy for someone to just email us cold and get, you know, a meeting and a potential investment. Um, that happens every once in a while, but most of the time the investments or the opportunity to take a look at are ones that were sent to us by other, other founders and mentors that we already know. Um, and there's some level of screening or qualification that probably happens at that level, uh, right. as well as, you know, in internally once they look at it. Um, so in, in a weird way, tough. we get, a, we get a lot of income. In a weird way, you investing in 900 startups is a very clever way, again, using your, what I'm calling now your, your prime skill, which is your networking ability. Like you basically have exponentially increased your network by investing in so many startups and this becomes a filtering mechanism. <laughs> don't tell anybody our secret. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I, nobody's listening to us. Don't worry. No one listens. Exactly. Yeah, um, I think that was uh, maybe unintentional at first, but I, I think we realized within the first year or two, um, by investing in a very large number of companies, we were doing two things at, at once. We were you know, building a large community of founders, uh, and we were also, you know, doing a, a continuous marketing campaign by investing a lot of small checks in a lot of people. Um, so both of those kind of, I think, gave us a, a really big platform to, you know, have a voice to the startup community. So, so, so again, let's say I'm in, in West Virginia now and, and I have to use the state name cause I can't name any city names in there, but, uh, 
Let's say, <laughs> let's say I'm in West Virginia. Morgantown, Charleston, Huntington. There's, there's a few. Every, there's every state has a Charleston, I think, because I would have thought South Carolina there. But um, let's say I'm in Charleston, West Virginia, and I want to improve. I, I want to do what you did. I want to improve my networking, but I'm not out in Silicon Valley. W- what should I do today? Well, I would probably say, you know, write about what you're doing. And uh, these days probably, you know, that would include multiple different channels that might be pictures on Instagram or Pinterest, might be videos on YouTube or other platforms. But I think, you know, the way that I got started with a lot of uh, things I was doing, one one was running conferences and user groups. The other one was really writing um, online to a blog and doing, you know, talks and presentations on SlideShare. Um, and eventually, you know, that sort of got to an audience of people that found what I was doing to be helpful. Uh, in this case, it was primarily entrepreneurs who were trying to figure out product and marketing strategies um, and ways to, you know, present their companies to investors. Um, but I think if you were building a business and, you know, let's just take a look at Mint when we were getting started. Um, before we even got the product out the door, a lot of what we were doing was collecting uh, personal finance content on the web through other bloggers and writers and producing some of our own and building a, you know, an online community through, you know, blog posts and maybe infographics and collecting other, you know, great, you know, content we found from other, you know, writers on the web. I think that's, I think that's, um, so really, that was, I think that's really great advice that to, to basically not limit yourself to your state, but write, writing and sharing and being transparent on the web to build almost an online community for yourself, and that becomes sort of the seeds of a network. Absolutely, and that, that's easier than ever before. And, you know, you're limited only by perhaps the language that you write in and the platforms you choose to distribute that content in. Um, but there's people, you know, who can produce content on YouTube or on blogging platforms or on Pinterest or Instagram that reach billions of people around the world. Well, uh, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I feel like we've uh, – maybe this is part of your networking uh, skills, but I feel like we've kind of known each other for, <laughs> for years uh, back and forth. So it was great to finally uh, meet over this podcast. But uh, I hope eventually we sit down for a coffee or something and, and get to know each other. So thank you very much. Oh, absolutely, uh, James. You're one of the most uh, fabulous writers. I, I love reading your stuff. It's both hilarious and insightful at the same time. And, oh, thank you. You're very, uh, very personal, I think. So uh resonated a lot when I've read your stuff. Excellent. Well, well, thanks very much, Dave. And, I, and once again, I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have to have a beer sometime soon. Yes. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.